In the fall of 2011, when I was serving my first church, First United Methodist Church of Clover, I had an experience that I find very relevant for this morning's text. I was the associate pastor there at Clover, and Clover is one of those sort of uh, quintessential all-American southern towns, you know, where you have the one main town square, and there's a church on every corner. Uh, we were just off the square, but close enough. We were the uh, second largest uh, congregation in town. Of course, the Baptist church was larger. You know the Baptists, they're always larger. But anyhow, um, we were the second largest, and we were a fairly prosperous congregation, and right there in the heart of town. And so, due to our proximity to the center of that town, physically and also uh, emotionally to the culture of the town, we had a lot of people who came in asking for help. And as the associate, I was usually the one who met with them. It was a wonderful experience, very eye-opening, very challenging, and also a tremendous blessing all at the same time. And so I would listen to their story and pray with them and seek to ascertain the legitimacy of their request and whether or not we should help them, how we should help them, how much we should help them, and, and so forth. And so a lady came in one day, and there was nothing uh, unusual about her or about her story. You know, they usually had uh, similar elements to life circumstances when people were in need. Uh, there was nothing unusual about her or her story or her request. But I'll never forget the way that she phrased it when we first sat down. She said, hey, I hear that y'all give people money. And, uh, you know, she was just shocked by this. And so I thought that she meant you know, that we gave the people the cash directly, which was a common misunderstanding. And of course, that would not be responsible stewardship because then we couldn't certify how they were using the money. So I explained, well, we don't actually give out cash. I mean, you know, we make the check payable to the landlord. But then she made it clear that that's really not what she meant. She didn't care whether we made the check payable to the landlord or to her. She just couldn't believe we were actually willing to help her. Uh, and as we talked, uh, it became obvious that she had absolutely no church background whatsoever. Not vacation Bible school, not Sunday school, not like a grandma that took her to church, nothing. She didn't know many Christians. She had had absolutely no exposure to church. Now, this was 2011, and this was when we first began talking about these unchurched people. And I had, you know, I grew up in Spartanburg, a heavily Bible Belt town. And then I went to Wilmore, the holy city, the uh, most church town on the planet per capita. And, uh, and I had heard about these unchurched specimens, but I had never actually encountered one. You know, sort of like a rare bird that you find in the wild or something. But, you know, over the years, I find that there's more and more unchurched folks, and I hope some of them are here this morning. Uh, I find that we have more and more unchurched people and that we need to be reaching out to more and more unchurched people. But this was my first encounter with someone who was so unchurched that she did not realize that churches did things like that, literally. She could not believe that as a total stranger, she could just mosey into a church in need and knowing that we had never seen her before, didn't know her, and probably wouldn't see her again. She wasn't going to start coming to church. She could wander out with a check to help with her rent. She was amazed by this. You know? I find that it's often the strangers who are amazed by the things of God. It's often those who are not familiar with church and with God and His Word and His people who are most fascinated by what we do in church. Those of us who are born and bred in the church take for granted things that they stand in awe of. We are bored by things that they are excited about. We regard as a drudgery sort of duty 
things that they are excited about being a part of and joyful about because they're not familiar with it. It's new to them. And you know, it's amazing when something's new, how much more exciting it is, you know, and how much more passionate we can get. And this lady, I'll never forget how grateful she was, how surprised she was, and how much gratitude, genuine, surprised sort of gratitude just exuded from her that we were going to be helping her with her rent. It's often the strangers and those who are at a distance from God and the things of God that get most excited when they are first exposed, and it is often those of us who have grown all too comfortable and familiar who take things for granted. Such is the case with our text this morning. There were 10 lepers who cried out to Jesus for healing. There were 10 lepers who Jesus healed, but there was only one leper who returned to give thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And it's very drastic in the text. That phrase is its own sentence. It's set apart. And he was a Samaritan. Very uh, bold and drastic on purpose, I think. And Jesus later says, was no one found except this foreigner? And it's the only time in the New Testament that that particular term for foreigner is used. It's somewhat of a derisive term. Jesus is shocked that this foreigner has returned to give thanks and the others are not. A foreigner, a stranger, an outsider, one who did not take God for granted, one who perhaps as a Samaritan did not think God would care even about him, certainly enough to heal him. He cried out in hopes that perhaps God would heal him, but not with, with confidence that God would heal him. Now, we are not explicitly told in the text that the other nine were Jews, but most commentators agree that they probably were. First of all, Jesus sends them to the priests, uh, which of course is in keeping with the book of Leviticus, so that would seem to indicate that they're probably Jews. You see, back then, uh, people went to the priest to determine whether or not they were healed. The priest uh, had to determine, is this person healed and cleansed, and therefore can they come back into the community, or are they not, you know? And so the priest had to inspect uh, the, uh, the sickness or the wound, in this case, wounds, plural, with leprosy. And actually, if it was a drastic enough of a situation, the priest would actually give them a certificate so they could prove to others that they were healed. Thank God that's not a part of my job description today. Um, I don't know whether you all have diseases or not, and I don't want to know. But anyway, back then, that's the way it was. The priest had to go and certify them that they were purified. So Jesus tells them to go to the priest, which would seem to indicate that they're probably Jews. And also the fact that the text goes out of its way to underscore that this one was a Samaritan would probably seem to indicate that the others were not. So what we have here is a story of one stranger, one foreigner, one who had not grown accustomed to the things of God, who had not grown comfortable with it, and therefore expressed grateful surprise when he was exposed to the fact that Jesus would do a thing like that, much like that lady in Clover so many years ago, that Jesus would care enough about him, a Samaritan, an outsider to the chosen people of God, not biologically Jew, an enemy of Israel as far as they were concerned. He expressed gratitude and the others were not, did not. And so we have here a text about the growing awareness amongst people who are not native to Israel, the growing awareness of Jesus and of the gospel being for them and a growing sense of casualness 
amongst those who should have been most grateful, the chosen people of God. It never ceases to amaze me uh, how misleading the subheadings in the Bible are. Uh, I would like to start a movement, perhaps, to expunge them altogether, or at least to expunge some of them. I always tell people, you know, the chapters and verse numbers and subheadings are not divinely inspired, and in fact, sometimes are just flat out wrong. Uh, The subheading in almost all Bibles for this text is the healing of the ten lepers, which it is a healing of ten lepers. But I submit to you this morning it ought to be called the Grateful Samaritan. Because the text isn't so much about the healing of the ten lepers, it's more about the gratitude of the one leper who was a Samaritan compared and contrasted with the nine who were not Samaritans and also not grateful. It's interesting when the text starts off that all ten of these lepers are on the same foot. Now, if you are church and you grew up in church, then you probably know, as I indicated a moment ago, that Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They were at odds, much like Palestinians and Jews are today, to the point of violence sometimes. It was very unusual uh, for a Jew to speak to a Samaritan, thus the irony of the title, a good Samaritan, thus uh, Jesus speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well. That's the punch of that story. And here we find yet another encounter with a Samaritan, a grateful Samaritan in this case. But it's interesting that the nine of them were probably Jews, one of them is a Samaritan, and yet they are together. Because lepers don't have the luxury of worrying about the normal social distinctions. Lepers aren't concerned about, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan, hey, we're all lepers. And when you're a leper, you're in this thing together whether you want to be or not. The social stigma about leprosy was higher than any other disease. In fact, even the home where a leper had lived was regarded as unclean. You wouldn't even go there if a leper used to live there. And so these people had been turned out by their friends and their family and their loved ones because their friends and family couldn't, uh, could not take the risk of being seen associating with them because then they'd be ostracized. And they also could not take the physical health risk because it was such a contagious disease that they did not want to associate with them and get sick themselves. So lepers were outcasts among outcasts and all they had was each other. Leprosy was an incurable disease. It was a slow, long, miserable death sentence. And not just a physical death, but a social, psychological, emotional death, whereby you were suddenly cut off from everything that you had known. It was a big deal. And here we have 10 lepers who don't care whether they're Jews or Samaritans or whatever. They know that all they have is each other. Now, it's interesting when they first encounter Jesus. I love the way that the text puts it. Listen carefully to this. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Did you catch that interesting juxtaposition? They stood at a distance and met him. Now, in this day and time, we meet people online. We meet people all sorts of ways, right? But usually, if we meet someone online or through some sort of technologically mediated means, we specify that, right? We specify that that's the way we met. If you just said, I met him recently, you would not, in, you would not mean that you kept your distance and waved at him across the room, right? If you say, I met someone at church, I met someone at work, surely at least you shook hands with them and got, you know, close enough to do that. I mean, we don't think of keeping our distance and meeting someone as going together conceptually or in a sentence. But these lepers stood at a distance and met him. 
When people are odious, they keep their distance from us and we want them to keep, you know, their distance and we don't really need to get that close to feel like we've met them. And so they stood at a distance and met him. And yet they were desperate for him. Jesus, Lord, Master, have mercy upon us. Uh, They start with distance and desperation. Distance and desperation. Now, distance can be physical, but it can also be emotional and psychological. Some of you are here this morning, but you feel distant from your spouse, even though you're sitting next to each other, or distant from your children, or distant from a friend who's sitting a few pews behind you or in front of you, or a friend who went to the different service, you know, and so you keep your distance in that respect. You're in the house of God, and yet I know many of you may feel distant from him. And these Samaritans kept physical distance but they also kept emotional and psychological and cultural and social and religious distance from Jesus and from everybody else except other lepers. But they were desperate for him. They were desperate for him. Distance often does that, doesn't it? When we're hungry and we know that it shouldn't be this way and we want it fixed, we want to get it resolved. We aren't told what they knew about Jesus or if they had ever encountered him before. Obviously, they had heard something, and they must have known that there was at least a chance that this guy named Jesus could heal them, and they were willing to try anything. It's amazing how desperation does that, isn't it? When things are not going our way, we're hungry, we're desperate, we'll try anything. Our prayer life is great. Our faith feels vital and vibrant, <laughs> you know? We're, we're giving, we're generous, we're committed, we're at church. Oh, and then when things get well, we kind of back off a bit. But desperation leads to a certain degree of vitality and vibrancy in our faith. I love Jesus' response. Go show yourselves to the priests. Now, that's not what they were looking for. They were looking for an instant healing right there that minute. But instead, Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, as I said earlier, the priests back then had to certify that these people were healed. So you don't go to the priest to get healed. You go to the priest because you are healed and you want official confirmation of that. Okay? Now, these people have just taken the first step by crying out to Jesus, and now Jesus wants to know, are they willing to take a second step? And see, sometimes we'll take a first step, maybe by coming to church or or what have you, but God wants to know, are you willing to take a second step? Are are you really willing to put some skin in the game? Poor choice of words for lepers. Uh, Are you willing to to leap out in faith? Are you willing to, uh, to do something that indicates that you really believe this? Do these people, Jesus says implicitly, do they really believe that I am who I say I am and that I can do what I say I can do, what they've heard I can do, or is this just a game to them? Go show yourselves to the priests. You know, that is an interesting uh, little insight, I think, to the Christian life. One of the things that I uh, try to maintain a sense of awe of, and I would encourage you to do so also, is the things that the Bible says about us. It's incredible when you read the Bible carefully and slowly, the bold proclamations that God says about us. There's a sense in which God has much more faith in us, you know, than we do in ourselves. I mean, you are saints, the Bible says. Uh, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then later he says, you are the light of the world. So, you know, therefore go shine like lights in the darkness. Uh, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Go, therefore, as Jesus himself came. Do you believe I will heal you? Go show yourselves to the priests. And so much of the Christian life is about living up to and living into what the Bible has already declared is true about us, isn't it? But that's not what we want to hear. We want the immediate breakthrough. <laughs> we want to be healed right now. But what does the text say? 
as they were going, they were cleansed. I thought this morning, maybe I should get that on my tombstone, if I'm worthy of it. As he was going, he was cleansed. What a synopsis that is of the Christian life. As we are going, we are in the process, hopefully, of becoming more like Christ. As we are going through the struggles and the trials of life, we are hopefully in the process of becoming better people, holier people, more generous people, more faithful people. And it's the crucible of the journey that squeezes that out of us, that makes us better than we would be if Jesus just zapped us here and now. Uh, right before that story I told you earlier, before we went to Clover, we were leaving a very hurtful uh, chapter of life and ministry and were very exhausted. And I remember we had a month in between the end of that job and the start of my appointment in Clover. And so we were, you know, trying to uh, take advantage of that opportunity to rest and to heal. And, and I remember this sense of urgency, like I wanted God to do something now. You know, I need, I need a fresh touch now. Well, I mean, that's perfectly natural <laughs> and normal, but oftentimes that's not how it works. Oftentimes, as you are going, you are healed. As you face other challenges, you realize what you've learned from the previous challenge, and your faith is stronger because of it, and you know things that you wouldn't know, and you serve others in ways that you wouldn't have, and you're humbler and more gracious, and as you are going, you are healed. So may it be. Now, I think, though, one other lesson we can learn from that that I think is very relevant for stewardship this morning is that faithful obedience— puts us in a position to experience God's blessing. Uh, faithful obedience is not a magic formula that ensures God's blessing. I'm not one of those prosperity gospel preachers. <clears throat> anyway, but faithful obedience does put us in a position to experience God's blessing. I think we see that quite clearly in the text. This is not a case of God helps those who help themselves. This is a case of God helping those who have gotten to a poor and destitute position where they know they can't help themselves, which I find to be often the case. And so God wants to know, will they respond in faithful obedience and thereby put themselves in a position for blessing? Now, uh, much to learn this morning from this grateful Samaritan. I want you to notice what happens after he's healed in verses 15 and 16. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him, and he was a Samaritan. Now notice that progression. We started with distance and desperation, and now we've come to closeness and adoration. They stood at a distance and met him, <laughs> and they cried out with this loud voice, and now knowing that he's been thoroughly healed, and I think the grateful Samaritan must not have simply been physically healed, you know, he wasn't just, it was, he wasn't physically a leper anymore, but he wasn't emotionally a leper anymore either. Do you know what I mean? It, because if he had just been physically healed, I suspect he still would have kept his distance out of habit. But the emotional inner healing of no longer feeling like a leper, no longer feeling like an outcast, leads him to this effusion of joy and gratitude where the natural response is to throw himself at Jesus' feet on his face and give him the glory that he deserves, you see. From distance and desperation to closeness and adoration. He no longer feels the need to keep his distance because he is no longer distant. No longer distant from himself, no longer distant from God, 
no longer distant from the community of faith, no longer distant from other people. He now naturally comes close to Jesus physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. And he's no longer desperate for healing. He's now thanking God for the healing from distance and desperation to closeness and adoration. And I submit to you this morning that that is a great pattern for the Christian life. That's a great pattern for the Christian life. You know, maybe we've backslid into sin, we feel convicted, maybe we've got a crisis or some sort of problem in our life, and so we begin to feel this sense of distance, you know, is God really good, can I trust Him? And so we get hungry for God, and then God moves, and then we have closeness to God, we thank God, things are going well, and then the cycle repeats itself. And I want to submit to you that's not such a bad thing, provided that we do move to the closeness and the adoration, because all too often we get off of that cycle and we become like the nine. (laughs) God moves, but we don't come back to give him thanks. We've gone from distance and desperation, we're not there anymore, but we're not at closeness and adoration either because the nine do not come back to give him thanks. And I think that that bothers Jesus. (laughs) That bothers Jesus and it ought to bother us. There can be no doubt that one very uncomfortable implication of this text is that all too many of us are like the nine all too often. Most of us are not Jewish by lineage. Some of us may be, but most of us are not. And so if we had been alive at that time, we would not have been the insiders. We would have been the Gentiles. We would have been on the outside looking in at the people of God, right? But especially today, especially in America, especially for those of us that are raised in the South, and especially for those of us that are raised in church, we do kind of have this, you know, sort of assumptive sense of being an insider, almost like we own this thing. We belong to this thing. It belongs to us, and, you know, God's lucky to have us. And (laughs) if we're not careful, all too frequently we can get into a sense of entitlement. And I think there can be no doubt that one implication of the text is that the people of God, like you and I, (laughs) are all too prone to falling into being like the nine, who go from distance to desperation to distance and nothing. (laughs) Distance and going on with our lives. Listen to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who turned back to give glory to God, except this foreigner? How could the people of God allow this Samaritan to outdo them? How could it be that only one out of ten came back to thank me? Now, you know, we have this sort of image of Jesus, meek and mild, who, you know, we would assume he might say, well, thank you for saying thanks, welcome, have a great day. But that's not what he says. He's more concerned about the ingratitude of the nine, isn't he? His heart breaks over the ingratitude of the nine. And so if we really want to engage with this text this morning, we have to look ourselves in the mirror and ask ourselves some hard questions. Am I in that nine? If I had been there, in a sense, I am in there, you know, when God moves in my life, how does this story play out in my life? Would it be that God would look at me and say, where are the nine? Or would I be like the one who falls on my face in gratitude? We aren't told why the nine chose not to come back and give thanks, but I have some educated conjectures for us this morning. First of all, I think they shunned the Samaritan. 
<laughs> I said earlier that when they were lepers, they were all bonded together by their common suffering. Suffering does that, doesn't it? It's one of the good things that comes out of major disasters and suffering. You have this unique bond. You know, we, we've, we've faced a lot of tragedy recently in our country and, and natural disasters and so forth. And it's one of the great things about that is, that, you know, heartwarming how people come together, overcoming distinctions. But you know, one of the discouraging things is how people and things have a way of going back to normal once the tragedy subsides. And so I think the nine probably shunned the Samaritan. I think when they realized that they were no longer lepers, they said, hey, we're Jews and you're a Samaritan. See you later. And if we want to learn to have the attitude of gratitude, we have to give God the glory regardless of who we're doing it with. <laughs> we can't be worried about who's sitting down the pew from us or not sitting down the pew from us or who used to sit down the pew from us. Or You see what I'm saying. We can't be worried about who we're giving God glory with or who's not giving God glory or whatever. We have to be worried about just giving God the glory that he deserves and not being worried about, well, I'm a Jew and you're a Samaritan. And uh -uh. The grateful Samaritan didn't have time for such things. And if we want to please Jesus, we shouldn't have time for such things either. Secondly, I think the nine got too focused on the gift and not focused enough on the giver. I think they got too focused on the gift and not focused enough on the giver. Now, if you are a parent, you know all about that. Because any parent has had plenty of times where you gave your kids a gift and they were real excited about the gift, but not so excited about your love for them. Or next time you came home, they were too focused on playing with the gift to greet you, right? They were focused on how cool that gift was and how now they had the thing that the other kids wanted and not too mindful of the sacrifice or the thoughtfulness that got them the gift, right? And how does God feel? And how does God feel as our Heavenly Father when we're focused on the gift instead of the giver? Do our, does our relationship with God revolve around what have you done for me lately? And does it revolve around what God can do for us or does it revolve around what we can do for God? And is, is God giving us enough or are we giving God enough glory? Grateful Samaritan demonstrates that it's not about the gift itself, it's about the giver. I think it's also possible that the nine who did not return to give thanks moved on to something else to worry about. <laughs> We're prone to do that, aren't we? No matter what we get, you know, we want something, we get it, then we find something else we want. We're worried about something, that subsides, and then we worry about something else. I know I'm guilty of that, and I think our culture encourages that, doesn't it? Our culture is constantly feeding us things to worry about, and things, <laughs> things to think about, things to fear, things that you ought to want, and, and all of this stuff. And I think it's entirely possible that the nine fell into that trap, whereas the grateful Samaritan was focused on what he had, not what he did not have, what God had already done, not worrying about what God would or would not do in the future. I want you to also notice the type of gratitude, the nature of this gratitude that the grateful Samaritan has. This is not a polite gratitude. This is not like a, you know, a socially acceptable thank you. This is a effusive, I don't care what anybody thinks about me type of gratitude. You know what I mean? This isn't like a polite little thank you note, you know? This is him falling on his face at Jesus' feet. He's not worried about what are other Samaritans gonna think? What are other lepers gonna think? What's my family? He doesn't care. This is a consuming gratitude where what he's focused on is making sure that he adequately responds to what God has done. And if we wanna learn about gratitude, that's the type of attitude we have to have. A sense of, you know, I don't care what anybody thinks or what's normal. <laughs> I don't worry about fitting in. I just want me and God 
as if no one else was, was looking, uh, as if it's just me and God. Am I giving God the glory and honor that he deserves? I also find it instructive that the grateful Samaritan does not compare himself to the others. Jesus says, where are the nine? And we don't find him saying, yeah, that's right. Where are those nine scoundrels? Ha, I'm the man. He's not worried about them. He's worried about his own relationship with God. The type of gratitude that he has is a consuming gratitude, not a comparative or competitive gratitude. Now, this is the start of our stewardship series, the first of three sermons on stewardship. If you knew that before you came, I want to thank you for getting out of bed and coming. This is good, good courage on your part, thank you. And if you knew that, or if you didn't, once you saw the video, you knew it. And I suspect you anticipated a sermon about money. I want to submit to you that, in a sense, this is a sermon about money. Because what we do with our money is all about gratitude. And this is a text and a sermon about gratitude. Uh, one of the common mistakes that I think we make in the Christian life is that when we hear stewardship, we automatically think just about money. Now, stewardship is about money. Money is an important part of stewardship. But stewardship is how we manage our lives overall. And money is one manifestation of that. It's an important manifestation. No, no doubt about that. It's one of the key aspects in the Christian life. But it is one manifestation of it. Stewardship is about overall how we manage our lives and how we respond to God with this heart of gratitude or lack thereof. Whether we fall on our face before Jesus frequently, thanking him for what he has done, seeking his will for our lives, or whether we maintain that sense of distance, that sense of comfort, you know, and just sort of a politically correct type of worship. Stewardship is about how we steward the gift of life itself. And I think the Grateful Samaritan has much to teach us this day about gratitude and about stewardship because he knew that he had a new lease on life. He was no longer a leper. He knew that something bold and dramatic had happened, and now his life was about gratitude. It wasn't just part of his life. It wasn't just something he did. This was going to consume him. And I want to submit to you that stewardship is about that. Yeah, it's about giving money, but it's about an all-consuming attitude of gratitude. Because if we're like the nine, then giving will always be a burden. But if we're like the one the one grateful Samaritan who returned to give thanks, then giving will always be a joy. If we're like the nine, giving will always be something we have to do. If we're like the one grateful Samaritan, giving will be something that we get to do. If we're like the nine, our church work and our gifts of our times and talents and service and all that stuff we speak of will be, you know, something we, you know, an obligation. But if we're like the one grateful Samaritan who returned to give thanks, it will be a joy and a privilege. And so I think for this stewardship series, perhaps our subtitle or our sub-question could simply be, are you like the one or are you like the nine? Because I think that sums it all up. That, at the end of the day, that's what stewardship is all about, is are we operating with a sense of gratefulness, a sense of gratitude, or are we operating with a sense of duty and drudgery? You know, is our Christianity something that we approach as an act of worship, our giving and, and every other aspect of our Christianity? Or is it something that we approach because, you know, we always have and, you know, our mom told us we should. And do you see what I'm saying? That makes all the difference. Are you like the one or are you like the nine? 
It's interesting, the term that Jesus uses in verse 19, when he says, your faith has healed you. Uh, Some will say, your faith has made you well, or your faith has made you whole. Some translations say, your faith has saved you. And this is the, the word that is used for salvation. And some scholars go so far as to say that the nine were only physically healed, but they did not experience spiritual salvation, whereas this one leper did. He came now into saving faith with Jesus Christ. And I think that's the question for stewardship, is it? Isn't it? Is our faith making us well? <laughs> is our faith making us whole in our giving, in our time, in our talents, in everything that constitutes stewardship? Is, it, is our faith making us well and whole in the sense that we live a life that reflects gratitude for what God has done? Or is our faith just a little part of our life that we're like, well, thank you for that blessing and I'm moving on? Are we like the one, or are we like the nine? Are we fully healed? You know, the one was fully healed, comprehensively, at the core of his being. The nine were only healed at a superficial level. They were healed physically, but not spiritually. Even as former lepers, they still managed to have some sense of entitlement and some sense of self-referenced way of being in the world, because Jesus makes it clear that they should have returned. (laughs) And so I find that to be an instructive question as we think about gratitude, as we think about stewardship. Are we really fully healed to the point where every aspect of our life is converted and under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Are we like the one or are we like the nine? This series is entitled Right on the Money. I want to submit to you if we want to be right on the money and right on the rest of our lives for that matter, we have to learn to be like the Grateful Samaritan, who teaches us that a stewardship campaign is not something that we do at church in the fall. A stewardship campaign is our life. Let us pray. Lord, we give you thanks for the gift of life itself and for the miraculous ways that you have moved in our life, for the ways that you have healed us, are healing us, and will heal us. And God, may we surrender and submit every aspect of our lives to you, that that might be the case, God, that you'd have your way in us, that as we are going throughout life, we would be healed, that we'd be willing to take the first step of crying out to you and the second step, God, that we would put steps behind what we say we believe, that, God, we would practice faithful obedience, trusting in you, trusting in your blessing, that we might be like this grateful Samaritan rather than the nine, that we might indeed give you the glory and honor and praise you deserve rather than simply moving on with our lives, that we might have no sense of entitlement or take you for granted or grow too comfortable but that we might always stand in awe of your work in our church and in our community and in our world and our lives such that we might indeed be a humble and grateful people who operate in every aspect of our lives thoroughly and comprehensively with grateful hearts. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.